We're back uh, to Luke chapter 12, if you would, please. And that quote from Corey Tenboom, um, I, there's going to be a time when every human on the planet has nothing but Jesus, and that is uh, when we're passing into the next life, where whichever direction that's going to take. So um, that is, in a way, the where we're headed with Luke chapter 12. Uh, this is a long chapter in Luke, and and I hope you're beginning to see that that this chapter, now obviously every chapter of Scripture is like this, but uh, Luke in chapter 12 is continuing to hammer away essentially one theme, one idea, uh, and it is critically important, and he keeps, he keeps going to the next level with it, uh, with each each uh, grouping of, of verses that we're looking at, but uh, the notion is is extremely serious. I wrote uh, relentless, transformative, insightful, challenging, on and on and on, and that is certainly uh, what we are going to see again today. And remember how this chapter began. Uh, he hasn't left it. This is not just a, a random gathering of thoughts from Jesus. Uh, this book is put together in a way that, that it has a flow to it. And it's a very significant and meaningful flow. And uh, he began in, in this one with uh, that dinner at the Pharisee's house when, when he, he, lays, he lays the Pharisees out and, uh, and then turns to his disciples and, and tells them, Beware that you don't become a Pharisee. Beware of the essence of the Pharisee. And the one word Jesus gave there was hypocrisy. And what we have seen uh, through the last uh, two or three weeks as Jesus is unfolding that concept, what he means uh, by this notion is, is don't be satisfied with where you are before a holy God. Key word there being satisfied. Uh, the hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about in the Pharisees is not so much that they're trying to be something they're not, it's that they are completely content and indeed uh, praising one another about where they are and where they are is, is a terrible place to be. Uh, and I would suggest and, um, and put forth the notion that we're living uh, in a world and especially in a culture in this world uh, that is much, much worse than what we saw in these Pharisees. There was a book, uh, Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. Uh, Tim was always so incredibly insightful in everything uh, he wrote. But uh, I want to just read some thoughts from the introduction. Uh, introduction, he, he subtitles The Idol Factory. And he's, he's going to begin by referring to 2008. Now, you remember that, uh, the so-called housing bubble and all the bubbles and, and things that were going wrong. This book came out in 2009, but he says this, after the global economic crisis began in mid-2008, there followed a tragic string of suicides of formerly wealthy and well-connected individuals. He goes through a couple of them, acting chief financial officer, Freddie Mac, hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. 
a French money manager who'd lost $1.4 billion of his client's money in Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme, slid his wrists, died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his 500-pound-a-night suite in Knightsbridge, London. A Bear Stearns executive learned that he would not be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase, which had bought his collapsed firm. He took a drug overdose and leapt from the 29th floor of his office building. We, of course, uh, know that recently, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, I don't know whether he was a CEO or chief financial officer, whoever it was, he jumped uh, to his death. And uh, Keller goes on to say, these are grimly reminiscent of the suicides in the wake of the 1929 stock market crash. In the 1830s, Alexis de Tocqueville, you, all of you probably, I hope you, you all have uh, the book that de Tocqueville wrote of his journeys through America that's one of the most insightful analyses of, of the United States that you will ever read. And it's uh, now 200 years old, but it still reads as well today as it did then. Uh, he recorded his famous observations on America. He noted, quote, a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance, end quote. De Tocqueville added, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. And Keller goes on to say, there's a difference between sorrow and despair. Sorrow is pain for which there are sources of consolation. Comes from losing one good thing among others. So that if you experience a career reversal, you can find comfort, for instance, in your family. Despair, on the other hand, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. There are no alternative, alternative sources to turn to. It breaks your spirit. What's the cause of this strange melancholy that permeates our society, even during boom times of frenetic activity and which turns to outright despair? De Tocqueville says it comes from taking some incomplete joy of this world and building your entire life on it. That's the definition of idolatry. That's where he will go. Um, Keller says, what are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? In ancient times, the deities were bloodthirsty and hard to appease. They still are. And he goes on from there. That's just the opening of the intro. Uh, that is exactly the kind of thing Jesus is talking about. We think we're going to find this satisfaction. Uh, the Pharisees found it in being uh, praised as, as being the leaders of the church. And you, you, we've already seen where they liked to, their, their seats were already always reserved up front. Uh, all of those kinds of things. They liked the, the uh, applause of, of the crowds and all of this. And again, I would suggest that, that we're in the middle of something very, very similar uh, to this and, and refusing to see what is going on around us. I was, um, oh, about a month or so ago, I was with um, a, a friend that uh, works for Merrill Lynch. And I said, are you still bullish on America? He said, of course. I said, could you tell me one reason why you would be? <laughs> and of course, the, the answer was the party line, but I didn't press him for that. But uh, at any rate, this, this is where we're headed 
uh, Luke says, beware of, of hypocrisy. That is not only feeling satisfied with something other than, than the Lord, but convincing yourself that those are the things you should seek, that it's possible to feel, uh, to get somewhere where you feel satisfied, where perhaps you don't need the Lord. Uh, at any rate, why does Jesus uh, tell us to beware? Well, because our eternal existence depends on it. We've, after Jesus left the Pharisees at their uh, dinner party, he talked about the rich fool uh, who had everything plus a lot that he, that he didn't need. And he thought everything was fine. But uh, Jesus says, this night, your soul is going to be demanded of you and you are not ready. Jesus didn't say that, but that was the point of it. Uh, so what's the litmus test? Uh, how would you know when you're, when you're imbalanced and, and moving away from the Lord, away from scriptural truth, into some sort of uh, cultural uh, dangling carrot that, that has your heart in its grip. Answer to that is moment by moment awareness, awareness of God and dependence upon God. Moment by moment awareness of God, moment by moment dependence upon God. That's where we're going uh, in this part of, of today's uh, Luke chapter 12, uh, what, uh, what would failure look like? Well, it looks like the Pharisees. It looks like the rich fool. It looks like anyone who is captive by any aspect of the culture, anything horizontal. Uh, what would be the success? What would be an A-plus rating in this? Uh, the answer to that would be constant spiritual vigilance. Jesus, in the passage we're going to look at today, which is verses 35 to 48, is going to give us three parables, back to back to back. Very short parables, very easy. Uh, these, these aren't going to be uh, anything we, we're going to have to, to really wrestle with. They're obvious. Uh, but what he's going to be showing is this notion of vigilance and what it looks like. So again, it's very, very important to connect all of these scriptural passages we're seeing week after week after week. This is an ongoing explanation that Jesus is giving to his disciples. And when he's telling his disciples something, he's telling you and me the same thing. Uh, so the uh, parables, uh, the first one, usually if you look up in commentaries, they'll call it the parable of the serving master. or the watchful servant. Uh, I, think, um, I, I think I got those backwards, actually. Usually it's called the parable of the watchful servant, but more importantly in this parable is the serving master. We're gonna see why that is. This is gonna be verses 35 through 38. Let's just read those uh, couple of, of verses. 35 to 28 says this, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants." 
uh, the, the the point is is focused on the servant, but uh, again, we're going to to see that really the important uh, character here is going to turn out to be the master. Uh, but this is talking about vigilance again. Again, it's obvious the servants. Uh, he's saying, if you're ready, whenever I come home, second watch, third watch, whenever that is, you would be deemed a vigilant person. But what is vigilance? Uh, any of you who've been in the service, uh, you probably uh, stood a post. Uh, Jack Nicholson, that, that glorious speech he makes at the end of A Few Good Men. Uh, if you've ever done that, you know how what, a, what a, an active role that is. The first time, perhaps, that you are assigned to stand a post, you probably think, oh my goodness, do I need to bring a book? Is, is this is going to be pretty boring. Uh, it's not boring when people are checking up on you and expect you to be where you are supposed to be for the duration of uh, the time you're supposed to be there, and especially if something happens uh, untoward while you are in this position. But here's a, here's a definition one commentator had of a vigil. A vigil is a purposeful or watchful staying awake during the usual hours of sleep. Uh, that only applies, of course, uh, to after-hours vigils. You can have vigils any time during the day. Uh, but the point I want us all to understand is keeping a vigil, being vigilant as a Christian, is a 24-7 uh, responsibility. Uh, it's, it's, it's a condition, it's a demand, it's an assignment of action. It is not passive in any sense of the term. Jesus uh, gives this, this parable about what? Vigilance about what? Vigilance about life and death. He's already given us the parable of the rich fool, uh, a man that was vigilant only toward everything that Keller was just talking about, uh, everything that had to do with horizontal living. Uh, you remember last time, the passage we looked at uh, beginning in verse 22, do not be anxious. And we went through that, that entire passage. And this has a lot to do with that notion also. Jesus says many, many times, be anxious for nothing. And I took that toward uh, increasing your faith. Uh, I, I would still take it toward increasing your faith, but understand that anxiety in this as, as sinful people living on a sinful planet, there are anxious moments that all of us will encounter. Uh, there are reasons for anxiety that sometimes don't come from those moments. Uh, there can be genetic influence. There can be physiological reasons. There can be any number of things that happen from outside. I guarantee you, if you woke up this morning in Jerusalem, you would be anxious and there would be a good reason for you to be anxious. And the notion of the faith that uh, Jesus is talking about and this constant vigilance is going to continue to be the solution, not only to anxiety, but to everything else of life, is to dig deeper and deeper roots into the scriptures so you have a greater time of horizontal, of, of vertical thinking and living. The more you are vertical, meaning with the Lord through his scriptures, the easier it's going to be to handle everything that comes to you horizontally, that is from the world. And that is very much a piece of what we're going to see uh, in these couple of parables 
today. Uh, so verse 35, fascinating, fascinating passage here. Uh, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Now where he's going here is a parable with, with a, an event that happens at night. Now you and I, when he says, keep your lamps burning, you and I don't, uh, don't realize the vigilance required for that if you live in a culture that has no electricity, as this culture did not. Uh, keeping your lamps burning was something you had to anticipate. If you didn't anticipate it, it would be awfully difficult to do that if the sun set and you weren't ready for it. Uh, but uh, he says here in this verse, uh, stay dressed for action. Uh, a belt for your robes, lamps burning. That is something that, um, that we're familiar with if we think back about this. Uh, I'll read just a couple of passages. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. This is when uh, the Jews are going to, to be led out of their captivity, 400 years worth in Egypt. And Moses is giving them some instruction. And here's what uh, verse 11 says of Exodus chapter 12. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. That is, that is uh, that's sort of a worldview, if you will. Even though we're eating, we're eating, in this case, the Lord's Passover celebration, uh, but understand that you want to be ready to move. Now, there was a good reason for that because they were going to be led out of Egypt uh, after this meal and they're going to be moving. But that theme never changes. In, in the book of uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, we run into that very, very famous uh, story of Elijah. Elijah is really at cross purposes with uh, Ahab, the king, and he's going to go before the prophets of Baal, Ahab's uh, horizontal solution that doesn't work. And in this 18th chapter of 1 Kings, Ahab is going to be running. He's, he's going to, he and, he and Elijah are going to have a, a foot race, as it were. And uh, he's in verse 21 of chapter 18, it says, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Uh, that's not gonna go well for the people, but what, uh, what uh, Elijah is focused on here, uh, very, very important is, is don't have a foot in a vertical world and a horizontal world. Devote yourself completely to the vertical and the horizontal. Again, we'll, you'll know how to deal with it. And when you when you get to uh, craters in your life, they're not going to uh, be uh, deep pits that you're not going to be able to extricate yourself from. Uh, here's another one from the beginning of, of the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah chapter one. Uh, Jesus, uh, God is calling Jeremiah to this ministry in verse uh, 17, his instructions from God are this, but you, Jeremiah, dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. 
so he's giving his uh, his marching orders, and, it, and again, all of these uh, examples here are things to be ready for. Dre- you're dressing for work, in other words. Uh, I love the the first kings limping between two opinions. That's that's a great story. Uh, now, there's something we need to see in in, uh, in verse 35 here. Back to Luke 12. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. These servants, these disciples are choosing to serve through a free act of will as the master is. A free act not compromised by any aspect of servility. This is going to to be emphasized in the next verse in in a fascinating way. Verse 36. This is setting the table, if you will. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. There's a number of words there that that uh, over the, the last 2000 years, various commentators have done various things with them and they're all very interesting. I think they're all accurate. Some of them take um, require taking a little bit of a different slant toward what is going on in this parable and that's okay. Uh, truth often works on a, on a number of levels. But what you see in verse 36, the master is apparently at some kind of evening wedding feast. And it uses the word here in the ESV, it uses the word waiting. And I said, be like men who are waiting for their master to come home. Now, waiting is a very passive kind of, uh, you know, it, to me, it makes me think of waiting, waiting for what? Waiting in a, for a bus, waiting for a train, uh, waiting at the terminal, waiting. Uh, it's, it's open-ended and, and sort of um, flat. The word that's used there in, in Greek has been translated for 2,000 years in the Syriac Arabic Christian church, the church that received this parable and that understood this parable better than, uh, than anybody else does not use the word waiting for this word. They translate it expecting. And think of the difference that makes in the parable. They're not waiting for the master, which is so open-ended. Maybe he comes home during the night. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he comes in the second. Maybe he comes in the third watch. Maybe he comes home the next day or the next week. These are just servants. And by the way, that's the very, very bottom of the pecking order in the Middle East at this point. You'd have the master at the top, you'd have the mistress and the children underneath that. And then you go through about five iterations of people, some of whom are permanent and paid employees. The very bottom are the slaves and the servants, and that's the people that we're talking about here. They're the ones that have to have the vigil and that are waiting. But it's an interesting concept to me that you could look at this as they're not waiting, they're expecting the master to come home. It uh, could be could be anything. Could be any minute. It uh, could be some sort of contingent that would bring him home. Could be the ending of the feast. Uh, but there's an excitement and there's a dynamic concept to the notion that, that maybe they're expecting. They're in the home with the lamps lit, with everything ready, expecting him to come home. The other word is come home. That phrase, come home, is twice in this verse. To come home and when he comes. This word, I think, and uh, and again, this this other concept of it, 
uh, from the Greek, and both of them, according to lexicons, both of them are, are aspects of this word in Greek that are, that are legitimate. Uh, but this would, would be withdraws, not when he comes home, but when he withdraws from the feast. Now you've really changed things up. Why would he withdraw from the feast? If he's just going to come home, you assume he's going to stay at the feast until the thing ends. Or if he comes home, it's going to be because he has no plans to go back. But if you look at it as if he's withdrawing from the feast, that immediately brings to mind a lot of questions like why? What, what's going to, uh, why would he withdraw from the feast? Um, here's another one, interesting word in this 36 verse, the word knock. We've already seen this earlier in Luke, Luke chapter 11, verses five and six. The whole of that parable revolved around the fact that one person, the stranger, knocked on the door at night. And that's totally verboten in the Middle East. You don't, no, no friend knocks on a door after the sun goes down in the Middle East. It's as true today as it was then. It, it really probably is almost true today in 21st century America. If I get a knock on my front door at 10 at night, I, I don't like that. Uh, everything goes up. Uh, I, I don't like that. But at 10 o'clock at night, if somebody makes, if they do or don't make a noise, but they talk to me through the door, it in, instantly diffuses any concern that I might have. And that's what we learned in the last chapter, Luke chapter 11. The friend is going to be a voice. That's why in Roman or Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, very, very famous passage. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears my voice and opens, I come into it. In other words, if you know me, if we're, if we're friends, uh, the voice is, is always going to be there. But here, uh, there's a knock at the door. Now, that's, again, we don't see how radical a concept that would be. But if, you're, if you were a Middle Easterner or wherever, uh, the closer you would get to this culture, the strange uh, behavior that would be would be unsettling because only strangers knock at a door at night. Uh, so why? Why the knock? Uh, withdrawing may perhaps be the key that un unlocks it. Maybe the withdrawing, if we take that sense of the Greek word there for coming back, uh, maybe he's slipping out of the feast and doesn't want to be seen to have slipped out of the feast. So he's keeping everything. Maybe the feast is in his own house or in a courtyard nearby and he doesn't want to, to be heard or whatever. But it's adding to the suspense of, of this, this master doing these things that are atypical, coming back to these servants in an unexpected way and fashion. Uh, he's slipped out uh, quietly, unseen. But why would you slip out? Well, look at verses 37 and 38. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. That's where the real whammy of this little parable comes. The master, this master having been at the top of the food chain and dealing with these people who are on the very bottom, 
has absolutely no obligation to do this, but, but all of a sudden he is the one that brings these servants and seats them or reclines them at the table and he serves them. He winds up putting <coughs> the belt around his robe so that he can then serve the servants. What's he going to serve? There's no hint here that he, when he left, he told the servant, why don't you keep, uh, you know, get a little food in reserve or something. And then when you put all of that together, perhaps he's taken some food from the middle of the feast, withdrawn quietly to come back and minister to his servants. That is pure conjecture. I don't, uh, I don't have any way to know all of that, uh, but I find that a very compelling uh, twist to this particular parable. Uh, those of you today that, that go on uh, online sometimes, when you look at a certain word for a meaning, you know, you get these, um, used to look like an old erector set or something, uh, these round circles all over the place with lines coming to them. And the thicker the line or the longer the line or something, it would be a more primary meaning for a word. But but here's a little smaller one over here. Here's a cluster over here that, that could, could go down this direction. Uh, so again, I'm not... Um, I'm not going to push either one of those uh, how to read this parable because both of them could be legitimate and it's parabolic language, but I like the notion. But the main point of it again is at the end of it, it's the master who serves uh, his servants. Uh, here's another fascinating twist. The word blessed occurs twice in those um, 37 and 38. 37 begins with it. 38 almost ends with it. That word blessed, two Greek words that are translated blessed in English uh, Bibles. The one used word, word used here is makarios. It's the same word you find in the Beatitudes where we have all of those verses. Blessed are the, the blah, blah, because of this blessed are the blah, blah. This word, when you use it for this word blessed, it, it's not saying that these servants are gonna be blessed because they were diligent. What it's saying here are these servants are known by their master to be blessed people, to be people who are vigilant, to be people who are faithful. We might translate it into our culture today. People who are faithful to the Lord, serving the Lord, ready to go at a moment's notice for the Lord. They are vigilant and they are, because of that, blessed by their master who comes in and serves them. Now you cannot possibly read this uh, without being drawn uh, to, uh, I'll get to this uh, very, very quickly if I, I, John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Uh, one, one person I was reading, I can't remember who it was, but, but he, was, he had a fascinating uh, take on this in the proximity of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. If you've been to, to uh, Israel, you know that, that Bethlehem's hop, skip, and a jump. It's about seven miles away from Jerusalem, very close. 
And he draws from that the analogy that incarnation is always close to atonement. He's saying Jesus not only comes, but then he makes atonement. And that's what uh, he was deriving from this little parable here. The master, Jesus, comes, comes there and he serves the servant. He not only comes, he withdraws from the feast perhaps, or even if he just comes from the feast, he serves, he comes to serve uh, the lowest of the low. So you've got this wonderful picture of Jesus uh, serving you and me, those people who would dedicate themselves to him and, and to faith in him. Uh, it's, it's really um, why we are blessed. We, we're, we're blessed because we have a savior who not only came, but he serves and he saves. Uh, next two verses are... Uh, Shorter. In fact, some people don't even call them a parable, but they then say parabolic language. So I don't know really what the difference is, but verses 39 and 40, Jesus ups the ante. How does he do that? By bringing a burglar into the scene. Why does that up the ante? Because burglars only do one thing and that's to steal valuable stuff. Well, in the context of what this chapter is about, what is the valuable stuff? It's my soul. It's your soul. All of the things that Keller talks about are things that can steal your soul. If you devote yourself horizontally to this world, when uh, you will be like the rich fool when it comes at that point that Corey Ten Boom talked about so wisely, where now I don't, there's no more time left. Now, within minutes, perhaps, I'm going to be in front of the God of the universe for better or for worse. I need to have been vigilant leading into this. So here comes in 39 and 40, a burglar. It says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So again, similar to, uh, to the parable, the rich fool, this, this is Jesus saying, the master of the house is gonna come back and you probably will not know when that coming back is going to be. Uh, so uh, be ready for it when it happens, uh, upping the ante with this, uh, this thief and of, uh, of value, eternal value is, uh, is the soul. Now, when you think about what's going on in Israel today, a lot of people, uh, to me, frankly, is a lot worse than, than that uh, 2008 uh, economic crisis. This I, I, I have a lot of people who, who are concerned. I run into them all the time that this could be it. And I said, well, what do you mean by it? Well, I think this could be the end of the world. Well, again, if we've read Luke chapter 12, the end of the world could be tonight. It could be this afternoon. It could be 10 million years from now. I don't know what is in God's mind. It will end when it, uh, when it is supposed to end in his mind. Uh, but it does bring all of these passages that we're looking at uh, together and make, make them make a whole lot of sense. Here's uh, what Paul's, Paul is about to die. He's about to go meet the maker and he's aware of this. So he's trying to pass a baton to his young protege named Timothy. And uh, in 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter three, it begins like this. Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. <laughs> I love his conclusion there, but uh, so Paul doesn't mince words there. He says, look, Timothy, here's what you're going to run into. And that's 2,000 years ago, and I don't think anything's changed, frankly. I think that litany there is, uh, is pretty accurate. In that second Timothy chapter 3, the first five verses of it. Uh, it's interesting that of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, the second coming of Christ is mentioned 318 times. In other words, the Holy Spirit wants us to realize that there is an end point to this thing. It doesn't go on forever. Uh, and in all likelihood, we're not going to know when that is. Could this be it? Yes, it could be it. There are a lot of things uh, percolating uh, today, but the message again is be blessed because I, Jesus, already know who you are. I know you to be my servant. I know you to be my follower. I know you put your faith in me. Therefore, you will be blessed. And then he ends with the third parable. It's up for grabs. I think you could easily take it all the way from verse 41 to 48. Uh, but he ends predictably this way, verse 41. Peter said, it's not surprising, Peter jumps into this. Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And Jesus doesn't even answer that. It goes to verse 42. And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. Final verse, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. I wanna end right there. I'm gonna to go to the second half of that verse uh, in a second, but, but what this um, verses 41 to 48 is sort of putting all of this together again. Uh, the point of all of it and, and think about the poignancy of this. The disciples have no clue about a cross or any of those kinds of things. They don't know about their own crosses they're going to be bearing, their own deaths that are going to, to occur because they are followers of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is preparing them, preparing them, preparing them. And I would, I would argue that you and I are exactly in the position of these disciples. You and I don't know what today is going to bring. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We don't know how, how much worse it could get. We don't know how much better it could get. The same message of vigilance is what Jesus is telling these men. Don't ever take your eye off of me in everything that you do. And I wonder sometimes whether 
in, you know, when we're driving down the road, when we're walking on a sidewalk, when we're, uh, what, whatever, are we, do you ever find your mind going to Jesus? And maybe just a quick prayer. You don't even have to utter the words. Are you thinking, are you always tied in with Jesus Christ according to his word? Have you created a worldview in which you live so that all of the time you are, you are going up? going up. Everything that comes in, everything that you see on Fox News that drives you to lose sleep, uh, which is an unfortunate uh, habit too many people have, everything that comes in to, that makes you think, oh my goodness, what will I do next? What you will do next is, is in, in this book, in the relationship you have. So one of, the, one of the lessons here is pray, 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 and keep praying. Develop that relationship, strengthen it, and keep it moving. But again, the complete surprise of all of this is in verse 37, where it's the master who comes to serve uh, the servants. I'll leave you with one, uh, one little verse from Psalm 85, 85.10, I think, yes. 85 verse 10 says this, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Uh, Jerusalem, Bethlehem. Jesus comes into this world for sinners like you, sinners like me. And seven miles away, he's on a cross dying so that he will take the punishment for your sin and mine. And the result is, Lord, what can I do to be honored to be your servant? I will look to you and follow you and obey you and try to learn more about you build up my faith so that the anxieties that come to me from a horizontal perspective, uh, yes, they will be there and, uh, and some of them I will not conquer, but you have conquered them and in you, I can take on the world, even a concentration camp, if you're Corey Tinbu and so many others. This world cannot, cannot break uh, the spirit of the Christian. Let's pray. Father, uh, this, this uh, message is so, so important to, be, to become habitual Christians. Uh, not just to say, well, 40 years ago, I remember signing a statement, or 38 years ago, I came forward, or whatever. It's what did I do 38 minutes ago? What will I do 38 minutes from now? Uh, Father, keep us focused solely on you, on your son and the power of your Holy Spirit to understand your plan for us in this world in which we live and to be your servants, joyful servants, taking on any role that you have us to play, knowing that you, our master, will feed us until we are at peace with Jesus by the throne of grace at the marriage supper of the lamb, the ultimate feast in heaven forever and ever. Keep us faithful, Lord Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.